Well, a very warm welcome to you. This is A Reason for Hope, and we are live with you for the next hour to receive your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, if you have questions about the Bible on your heart, maybe a, a verse or passage of Scripture um, that you'd like to delve further into, maybe uh, you know a biblical perspective on world events, maybe events in your own world, maybe there's something you're walking through and would like a biblical perspective on that we are equipped with the word and we'll endeavor to find those answers with you and we're very glad you're with us and again this hour is completely guided by your questions so do send them in to us my name is dave robson i'm your host today and with me in the studio as is i say often but always the case in fact so far uh pastor sean richards how are you doing today happier than a tick in august <laughs> that's a that's a that's a high level of happy it's good to see you, and also Pastor Peter Martin. Good to see you on this Tuesday. It's good to see you too. Yeah, how you doing? Doing okay. You doing good. Yep. <laughs> solid three out of ten. You know. Solid th- <laughs> wow, guys, we've got a tick and a solid three out of ten. That's uh, we'll see what we can do with that. Let me let you know how you can be part of the show today. If you're if you're listening to us on Reach Radio, you are listening to a pre-recorded version of our show. Usually, the previous show we did um, yesterday. But do send us your questions at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questions for hope, all spelled out with letters at gmail.com. That's our email address that you can reach us and uh, get in touch uh, anytime, of course. But send us your questions there and we'll endeavor to get to those on our next show. But on the other platforms, you can join us live as can be. Uh, Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship. Peter always laughs at me from across the table, but I will not be deterred. <laughs> I'll just put the camera on him while he laughs <laughs> at me. I'm so very professional. A Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship. So you can <laughs> you can find us at calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live uh, tab. Also, you're completely throwing me off. Uh, also, <laughs> that was on, the intent. <laughs> was the intent. You succeeded. Also on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can find us there. We are live there also. We have an app for our church. So on your mobile device, your iPhone or, or uh, iPad, those mobile device thingies, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship. There's an app that you can download and join us there as well. Also on Roku and Apple TV, should you want to put us on the big screen. And why wouldn't you want to put us on the big screen Gather your family around and join us that way. On YouTube, we are at A Reason for Hope. That is the name of the channel there, A Reason for Hope. And we're live there also. And once again, just send your questions into the chat boxes, chat functions on those platforms. And I personally will be monitoring those as we go along this hour. And I, and I will throw the questions at these wonderful brothers. <clears throat> and uh, they will seek the answers in the Word. We're very excited to, to be doing that. And why don't we ask the Lord for his blessing, Peter? Would you pray for us? I would, and I will. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Dear God, we thank you so much for this time that we get to spend together, spend inside of your word. We do pray that um, the answers that we provide today would be something that glorifies you, that all those listening would be blessed by it and drawn into a closer and deeper relationship with you, Lord. We love you so much, and in your name, amen. Amen. Well, it's Tuesday. You know what that means. You know what that means. I know what that means because <laughs> it's like my third time of having a Tuesday. It's Apologetics Tuesday. What have you guys got on your heart to share with us? Well, it's pretty much the thing we've been discussing for the last couple months. Just a quick recap in anticipation of Reformation Day. Uh, the call mark and the call sign of the Reformation were the solas, 
and we've taken the last couple weeks to clarify the significance of those things with you all. Peter, what were they and why were they important? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So as you said, Sean, we're coming up on Reformation Day. Reformation Day happens October 31st, so October 31st is not just Halloween. It is Reformation Day, and that is where we celebrate the day that Martin Luther nailed up his 95 theses on the church door, and we'll talk a little bit about what those were in a second here, but it started or sparked this idea that they wanted to reform the church from the inside out. This is not a revolution. This is not, we hate the church, we hate the Catholic church, we hate everything that they're doing, and we want to move away from it. It was instead, let us take the things that are working within the Catholic church and reform them, bring them back to their original roots within scripture, and bring us back to our uh, solid faith within Christ. So, The five solas are placed within a sentence structure, and they go like this. Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, right? So this was to contradict or to go against the Catholic Church kind of usurping too much authority for themselves as making themselves the final arbiter of God's truth on this earth, putting themselves almost to the level, if not at the level, or in some cases above the level of Scripture, in their ability to arbitrate truth to the church, as well as giving themselves the capacity to forgive people through the penance system, as well as the indulgence system, and through the giving of other sacraments, being the sole arbiters of giving of sacraments of Eucharist and baptism, all necessary for Christian salvation. These were things that the Reformers patently denied, they didn't like, and they went against. So Reformation Day is reminding ourselves of that. Now, why did Martin Luther choose to do this on October 31st? Is because it's scary stuff? No, he did it because All Saints Day happened in that very same week. All Saints Day is a practice, it is a celebration or a holiday by the Catholic Church in which they celebrate saints who have died and gone to heaven. Now, the day before that, November 1st, which is If you're doing your math correctly, yes, that is the day after Halloween. They celebrate uh, a day of mourning and prayer for people who are stuck in purgatory. Now, me and Sean talked a lot about this last week, so if you want to understand the complexities of indulgences as well as purgatory, you could listen to that. But essentially, he wanted to nail this up while all these things were fresh in his mind. So what his intent was is he actually wanted to debate people based on these 95 theses. So I'm not going to go through all of them. But this is how he began his letter, what he nailed up. This is kind of the preamble to the letter that he nailed up on the door. Out of love for the truth and from desire to elucidate it, the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts in Sacred Theology, an ordinary lecturer therein at Wittenberg, intends to defend the following statements and to dispute on them in that place. Therefore, he asks that those who cannot be present and dispute with him orally shall do so in their absence by letter in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. So again, he's asking for a debate. He's not just saying, you guys are terrible and I'm protesting against you. He's saying, let's talk, come, let us reason together, as Isaiah says. So I'll I'll just read the first two because I think they give a good entrance to what he's going to say throughout. And you could also hear it within the five solas. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4, verse 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Number two, This word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction, as administered by the clergy. Number three, yet it does not mean solely 
inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortifications of the flesh. And he goes on from there. So once again, he's not disputing the underlying reasons why penance and indulgences were being practiced. He's disputing their conclusionary statements. The therefore, this is how a man becomes right with God. He's saying, no, this is not how a man becomes right with God. There are reasons why we have outward manifestations of repentance, but the church is not the thing that forgives you before God, that doesn't have that kind of power. And he goes on to explain it. So uh, again, we've been going through the Bible. We've been going through various church fathers to illuminate this, uh, why we believe the way we do as Protestants. But um, yeah, closing thoughts on the solas and on top of that, the 95 Theses and the Reformation in general. Well, and just to note all those listening in full transparency, we're not Lutherans or we're not Calvinists or we're not even necessarily reformers in the sense that we think Christianity can't be practiced down to its roots. But we do believe in the cause that they championed, and insofar as their claims historically were in line with Scripture, we also stand by them, and we also want to counteract like Martin Luther before us, the claims that were made or the teachings that were promoted in the name of Christ that were contrary to Scripture. In a sense, he was making a Facebook post and Facebook put him in literal Facebook jail, (laughs) diet of worms and so forth. But the point being made is just that. Understand that because a spiritual person said it isn't the reason we support it. Because someone was against the Catholic Church, that doesn't mean that that's a good thing. The reason why we support anything is because it lines up with our primary source of truth and revelation about God. If someone makes a statement or promotes a teaching contrary to these things, we want you to be able to ask effective questions that we, from that source, will provide reasonable answers, that you also will be able to engage with a reason for the hope that is within you, and on it goes. But note again the reasons why these were discussed, because they are biblical, they are based in not only what God has revealed, but in light of all that God has revealed, and are consistent with the revelation of Jesus Christ. So note that as the reason why we went through these things. We're not anti-Catholic activists, we're not saying these things because we have a denominational Uh, preconceived allegiance or uh, oath of loyalty to these organizations. There are things we would disagree with them on. The point being made is the primary claims are the main things, and the main things of Scripture are well summarized by these five things, so we wanted to inform all of you. Now, if you have any other topics you'd like to address in more detail for Apologetics Tuesday, we'll be happy to get into them, but uh, let us know as well if you have any further questions about the five solas. We'll be happy to revisit this topic anytime, because it is, in fact, biblical. Absolutely. Very good. Thank you so much. Hope that helps you out. We have a couple of questions that were left over from yesterday. I put them in the fridge overnight, so they're still fresh. Uh, We can tackle those uh, first. We had um, a lot of questions yesterday and did kind of a speedy kind of round (laughs) towards the end. It was very exciting. so uh, a couple of questions here. Uh, how do I help a Christian that is heavily involved in flat earth beliefs uh, being rooted in the Bible? So they believe that the Bible teaches flat earth is, is the, their belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and would such a belief cause a problem with their salvation? Is that a... Yeah, that's, that's I think what's key. In terms of salvation, I would want to address them more personally. 
how their handling of Scripture appears in other places. But there's a difference between something affecting your salvation and something affecting your witness. The uh, king of Israel, David, is a perfect example of this. After his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, he was told by the prophet Nathan, I believe it was, that you have given cause for the Gentiles, those who don't know God, to blaspheme. And so when people who are outside of Christianity see those even in a smaller and very (laughs) ostracized group of Christians would claim, no, the Bible teaches a flat earth, and they would preach this as if it's a fundamental gospel truth, that you're not a true Christian unless you agree with this very specific form of cosmology I've chosen to adapt because of a passage in the Psalms out of context and a third of a verse from Isaiah. The point being made is this. When we're talking to people about Jesus, we don't need to create more obstacles between us and him. There's already their fallen sinful flesh, this world's influence, and the work of the enemy to keep them alienated from God. If you give them more excuses to say, well, those Christians, they're just uh, believers in this uh, archaic flat earth theory and so forth, obviously those who adhere to that belief system aren't going to say that, uh, you know, it's a secondary issue or even a, um, you know, issue of salvation. But the problem is, and this is to their credit, the reason for their passion, they claim to have a love for the truth and they believe that this is truth. So they want everything, especially the things that are popularized, that they believe are lies, to be combated where and how they can. But the problem with that is it's not based on misinformation. It's based on a lack of trust in sources of information. We talk about this whenever Flat Earth and the Bible comes up. If you want to discuss specific passages or have the friend uh, maybe message us with some of his proof texts and we can go through them, that would be another topic. But for those who are listening to this and you know someone, Christian or not, that is adhering to Flat Earth, in my experience... I've only met five, so I can't say nine times out of ten, so four times out of five. (laughs) They're the kind of people who have been lied to one too many times. And so instead of passionately pursuing the truth, they react not to information but to sources of information. And you can note this to a degree. If a source of information has proven themselves untrustworthy time and time again, you tend to be kind of reticent of anything you hear from them as a reflex. But this is taking it a step further. They're going so far the other direction as to say, if they have lied to me so many times, popular science and sources of astronomy, for example, uh, even maybe... uh, tacking on another letter to NASA and saying it's actually Satan, it's spelled around. You see a lot of passion there, but the point of emphasis is what? Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure we'll get that logic when we get to Christmas as well. But here's the point that's being made. When people are reacting to that information or the source of misinformation, they don't say, I'm going to challenge everything they say. It's, I'm going to passionately adhere to the opposite of everything that they say. If they say that the earth is spherical, well, they're liars, so therefore the truth must be that the earth is flat, and on the fallacy goes. Now, Peter, even again, we don't really have to address this biblically, but if you feel led to, by all means, what would be the best way to handle this within house to a fellow Christian who would adhere to these views and, again, dealing with the bad thinking behind it? 
Yeah, like like you said, Sean, I think the first thing is to understand why they're they're thinking the way that they are. And, and I do agree with you. I think the vast majority of flat earth uh, theorists are ones that, and this is what happens with most people who become conspiracy theorists, right? The reason why we call them conspiracy theorists is because the only way that they could be right is if there's a massive globalistic conspiracy to trick people into uh, a view of cosmology that is actually untrue. Uh, for flat earthers to be right, you would have to believe that there is a global conspiracy that has spanned centuries. Uh, so think about that for a second. A cohesive conspiracy that has spanned centuries around the entirety of the globe to prevent people from knowing that the world is actually flat, right? They actually have to have people prevented from going to Antarctica because that's where the end of the earth is. They have to be lying because of the launching of satellites into the atmosphere. Uh, there's so many things that have to be accounted for. And the only way to be driven to that level of conspiratorial thinking is to actually be, as you said, disenchanted with the institutions that have been placed above us. And so it is important to, understand, uh, to try to help them through that thinking of, hey, I get it. Right? <laughs> These institutions have lied a lot and blown out their credibility, but I don't base my belief on a spherical world from just an appeal to authority. Well, NASA says, right, or I, I saw this uh, computer-generated image of the world once, and therefore I believe this way. No, no, there's, there's a lot of good reasons to believe in a spherical world and a vast universe. Um, and you also have to remember that when they're attacking the institutions, the institutions that they're attacking now were founded by Christians. So uh, this is some of the quotes from the people who now, again, there's a lot of theories about when mankind first learned that the world was actually spherical, and there's a lot of evidence that this precedes even guys like uh, Christopher Columbus, right? There's, there's a lot of evidence that actually in the first millennia, people knew this, but it was actually made completely provable through people during especially the scientific revolution and the Renaissance period. So I'm going to quote some of the, the people that made this absolutely provable. This is Nicholas Copernicus. Uh, he lived from 1473 to 1543. He says, To know the mighty works of God, to comprehend his wisdom and majesty and power, to appreciate in degree the wonderful workings of his laws, surely all this must be more pleasing and acceptable mode of worship to the Most High, to whom ignorance cannot be more grateful than knowledge. Uh, another guy who was really key in this, Giordano Bruno, uh, he's the one that actually theorized and proved that the stars were distant suns, and not just uh, specks of light within the sky, he said, Thus is the ex excellence of God magnified, and the greatness of his kingdom made manifest, uh, who is glorified not in one, but in countless suns, not in a single earth but or a single world, but in thousands upon thousands. I say an infinity of worlds. Right. So that's how he viewed it. And then one more, Johannes Kepler, who created the laws of planetary motion, uh, he says, since we are astronomers, we astronomers are priests of the Most High God in regard to the book of nature. It benefits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but rather, above all else, the glory of God. Don't let the scientists today who are materialistic atheists convince you that the church was responsible for confounding knowledge and keeping people away from scientific truth. The church were the ones who created the scientific revolution. These guys were Christians who came up with these theories and proved them through empirical evidence, right? These were Christians. These were not materialistic atheists. They were trying to prove it because they believed 
that God wants us to discover truth. He's given us intellect, he's given us knowledge and wisdom, and he's designed his universe in a way that is explorable and knowable. Therefore, it is our way, our mode of worship to figure these things out and to glorify him through our wisdom. So a uh, very important thing, don't allow your current disenchantment with modern day science ruin the entire scientific method for you. Understand that these institutions were built by Christians and also understand that it is, as you said, Sean, a bad witness <laughs> to go to people today and say, no, there is this conspiracy going on. I can't trust any scientific method. That is very bad. Instead, flip the script on people and say, actually, Christians were the ones who designed all these things. Christians were the ones who did because we have a worldview that allows for uniformity of nature. Atheists don't. Even David Hume, famous atheistic philosopher, admitted that. There is nothing within secularistic atheistic thought that allows for uniformity of nature, and it is a belief in the uniformity of nature that is the basis for all science. So very important to understand that. So again, not a salvation issue, but definitely a poor witness. Make sure that you understand the difference. Pray for them. If you have conversations with them, bring them back to the gospel and trust that the spirit within them will lead them into all truth. But note, we do agree these passions are very much misplaced and based on fallacy, and that's not the sort of thing that Christians should be witnessing to the world. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Speaking of salvation issues, we have a question from Mac. Are we saved by faith alone? Uh, he said Abraham was considered righteous. He had faith, but also um, he had, you know, he was willing to sacrifice his son. So he also obeyed. So is it just faith alone that saves us, or is it our deeds and actions revisiting sola fide? Well? <laughs> Absolutely. So um, let me let me go back. Uh, I'll read read one of the ninety five theses for you because there is a mistake that some people can make, and usually it is cults and uh, as well as some well-meaning Roman Catholics who mischaracterize Protestants as saying, well, well, yeah, it's just faith alone, so it doesn't have to affect your behavior at all, right? What you believe doesn't have to affect your behavior at all. It's just, it's just whatever. You just believe in God. This is, again, Martin Luther, the guy who was one of the major proponents of sola fide. This is his second uh, thesis. This word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, the confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy, Yet, it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. So once again, people who would mischaracterize Martin Luther as saying, well, you just thought that you could just believe and it doesn't have to affect your behaviors or actions. No, no, no. Belief will necessarily affect your behaviors and actions. That's what Martin Luther is saying. If you've genuinely repented on the inside, it will manifest itself in your behavior. And that's what Mm. we see in Abraham. So I love the fact that you brought up Abraham because that is the major argumentation that we utilize for being saved by grace through faith alone. Abraham was saved not through the giving of the law, but in Genesis 15, verse 6, he was declared righteous by God by his faith in God's promise. Now, how do we know that Abraham actually believed God in his promise? Well, we know in many different ways in Abraham's behavior But the major test of his faith came in Genesis 22, where Abraham was called to offer Isaac on the altar. Now, how do we know that Abraham really believed God that Isaac was the child of promise through which all nations would be blessed? Well, when God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, before Isaac had any kids, (laughs) Abraham had to believe that God was going to do something miraculous in order to fulfill his promise. And in the book of Hebrews, 
the writer of Hebrews actually said that Abraham believed with confidence that God would even raise Isaac from the dead to fulfill his promise. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of faith that we're talking about. We're not talking about some dead faith that exists only in the confines of your own mind and intellect. We're talking about a faith that changes the way you behave, that changes the Mm -hmm. way that you act. This is why James links the two. If you read James chapter 2, where he talks about faith alone saving you or faith manifested through works, he says it is faith manifested through works. And he uses this as his main argumentation. Uh, So he quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, just like the Apostle Paul does. Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But then he goes on to quote Genesis 22 and says, therefore, his faith was made perfect, right? It doesn't mean that he had an imperfect faith. The word perfect there, it's the word teleoi. It means to come to completion, right? So I believe, and then again, that belief is manifested through my behavior. Mm. And that's how people know that the faith was actually true. Now, once again, as Christians, it doesn't mean that we don't mess up. It doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. It doesn't even mean that we don't have some ignorance or blind spots in what we think about God that we later come to be corrected by. What it means is that the fundamental aspects of faith is that I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that I sinned against God, and that sin has separated me from him, and that I need a salvific substitution, which is what Jesus is, I believe in what he did for me, and I believe that that alone enables me to have a relationship with the true and living God, right? That belief is going to affect my behavior, right? It's going to affect the way I think about morality because now I'm basing morality not on what I think or my culture thinks. I'm basing it on what Jesus thinks because he's my Lord. Um, it also is going to affect the, the type of people I'm going to surround myself with. It's going to affect the things that I do. It's going to affect the books that I read, right? It will affect and touch every aspect of my life, but these things happen... Um, over time. They happen gradually over time. Not something where I could say, well, you know, I can know that you are saved because you don't sin anymore, because God is Lord completely over your life, and that's how I know that you're saved. Or I can know that you're saved because you go through these various sacramental systems or something like that. No, the salvation happens by faith, but it is manifested through works. That's the best way I could put it. All right. So when the question then is asked, what is the difference between easy believism and sola fide? It's understanding we want real faith. And faith, trust with reason, is of course reasonable. It's based on sound reason. You can have misinformed faith, but what kind of faith saves you? It is the trust in Jesus' promise that if I live, you will live also. Based on what? His death and his resurrection. Based on the historical fact, he said, I am God and I'm going to prove it to you. I'm doing this not just because I am God, because I love you, and this is how I am accomplishing your restoration to me. If you trust in that, even based on the most bare-bones information, you are saved. Romans 10, 9 through 10, Ephesians 2, 9 through 11, on it goes. But does the Christian life stop there? For some, perhaps. For others, usually not. What then happens? The difference is sanctification, being called to a relationship with Jesus, and that will reflect the genuineness of your faith, whether you fall away or not. The Apostle John wrote in his epistle that that shows that you were never of us, but that point still stands. If you continue in an abiding relationship with Jesus, we know that your starting point was the right point. If you know your ending point, that's another issue. The Lord knows who are his, but the point being made is centered around that. Does faith alone save us? Yes. So what about works? as if that wasn't already mentioned or assumed in faith. Right. That's the issue. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, well put. You know, and I'm I'm a very simple guy. <laughs> I like to think of it as 
there are, you know, our works is a, just a symptom of our faith. You know, if you have faith in something, or if you, you know, you believe something about something, there's symptoms of that. You know, right. if I say I love my kids, they'll see symptoms of that truth. They will see the, you know, my love come out for them in in, in works, so to speak. You know, um, or you would often hear, you know, well, I love you. Well, you don't act that way. You know, that you don't see any evidence of it. So, the works are a symptom of the fact that we've been saved and that 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 belief and that faith is a true change you know within us so very very good stuff a very common question you know how does that all work together thank yeah. you mac for that question we appreciate it I have a question over email again our, our email is uh, questionsforhope at gmail.com questionsforhope at gmail.com you can email us, email us there you know 24 7 and we get to those questions as well uh, email from ted he thanks us for our broadcast you're very welcome thank you for being part of it uh, it's our pleasure to do it. He has a question about John 6.44, where it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. Mm. He was watching a video. Someone used, this is evidence for the Calvinist point, uh, point of view, um, and that God has an elect group. So Calvinism, you could sum up by saying they believe that God has his elect, those are the people that will be saved, and that's kind of end of story, right? To sum to sum that up. Yeah, some Cath or some Calvinists would take it farther than that and say there's also a chosen group God has not selected for salvation, right. and that's again not to misrepresent them would not be a, an inference they would make, but it is of course a conclusion you have to contend with. What about those who aren't saved? Well, they weren't elect. On what basis? The grace of God. It's not very gracious. Why on that basis? Do our decisions play a factor? Thus the debate. Do we have free will? That's the generally umbrellaed under Arminianism. Not entirely, but the point being made is that those who say, well, God's sovereignty, that is the ultimate deciding factor of your salvation. That would be the Calvinist position. We here on the broadcast say, yes, there is room for both. Our God is sovereign enough to allow for free will. The challenge in this, and again, we wouldn't disagree with John 6.44, that nope. you don't come to salvation unless the Father draws you. No one knows the Son except the one whom the uh, Father wills to reveal him. But the assumption is that the whole world hasn't received the revelation of Jesus Christ. The assumption is, and we would dovetail this with other passages that make the same point, 1 Corinthians 12.3 is my personal favorite, where it notes, no one under the Spirit of God will call Jesus accursed, and no one except by the Spirit of God calls Jesus Lord. Now, calling Jesus Lord, what does that mean? Salvation, right? So unless the Spirit draws you, not just the Father, the Spirit draws you, you can't get saved. So then, that being said, why isn't the Spirit drawing people, and why is he only drawing certain groups? Well, that question is based on, once again, a faulty assumption that God isn't calling everybody, that God isn't calling anyone apart from his select group. How do they argue this? Because of a passage in the book of Romans chapter 9 where it notes, who has resisted his will? To whom has the armed Lord been revealed? So the question or concern is, if it's impossible, this is the Calvinist position, for someone to resist God's work and salvation is a work of the Spirit in the lives of an individual, how then can someone be drawn by the Spirit and not get saved? The conclusion, God only draws those who he knows will be saved. That's an emphasis for foreknowledge and sovereignty. The Armenian position notes there are those who can resist his will. There are those who can say no to a saving relationship with Jesus and that they are held morally accountable 
for that decision on the same basis those who receive salvation are engaging in a genuine relationship. They're not being set up to uh, succeed any more than others are being set up to fail. And this is the issue, is are you then saying that God is not sovereign? That there are people that God created knowing that he would reject them and then leaving them ultimately to bring themselves to hell? And the, again, assumption behind that is in God allowing someone to make the wrong decision, he set them up for it, which is a very modern statement. Mm-hmm. Well, my parents are at fault for all the faults in my life because I didn't ask to be born. Now, it doesn't take a philosophy PhD to figure out how stupid that claim is. The point being made is just that. Does Scripture teach that God is sovereign? And we can go to a number of different passages. John chapter 9, verse 44 is one of them. We can give a few more. Uh, Let me get my quick uh, cheat sheet notes here, because again, this does come up a lot. Um, When it comes to the idea of God being sovereign in our relationship, God having a say in the relationship, probably the most direct, would of course be the statement Jesus made to his disciples where he notes that you did not choose me, but I chose you, that you should go and bear fruit. But then we go to the Old Testament, the foundation of Jesus' ministry in the book of Deuteronomy, where he notes, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. Either the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are in conflict with one another, or it's the same statement happening simultaneously. And, of course, we say, well, how does that jibe philosophically? And that's when we raise our hands and go, we're dealing with an infinite being here. This kind of goes beyond our pay grade, and even a staunch Calvinist would acknowledge, okay, I'll give you that. God is kind of above our pay grade, (laughs) but this is what makes the most sense to me. And I'd say, God bless you. Nothing that you affirm from Scripture we would disagree with. It's completely and properly represented. The problem isn't, though, in what we affirm, is it? No, it's in uh, what is denied. Mm -hmm. Uh, So here's an interesting passage. I like this because there's actually quite a few of these. Uh, they're, they're seemingly paradoxical, right? Seemingly contradictory statements put into one tight and neat verse. So this is John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Sounds very Arminian to me, uh, right? I'm receiving him. By my receiving him, he is giving me the right to become a son of God, right? Mm-hmm. That seems like human free will. Uh, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That sounds very Calvinist to me, right? I mean, I'm a man, so if I willed it, it's not of my will, it's of God's will. It seems like he's the one that's totally responsible for me coming to him, yet the beginning of the passage seems to be, it's I'm responsible for it. I have to receive him, I have to choose to believe in him, and by that choice, God is going to allow me to be a son or not. Uh, But then it also says that it's really not up to me, it's up to God. How do you square that circle? As Sean said, you ju- you don't. <laughs> you just you just realize we're dealing with an infinite God. We're dealing with a seemingly paradoxical environment, but it's not paradoxical. It is harmonized within God. I think there's another mistake that some Calvinists can make when they say, well, who has resisted the will of God? There's a distinction in the Bible between the will of God, meaning his preordained sovereign will, versus will as in his desire. Right? There are many things that God desires that won't happen. Uh, how about this one? For he desires that all would come to repentance and that none should perish. Well, are all going to come to repentance? 
Even in the Calvinist position, no. Nope. So that means that people are resisting the desires of God. Um, or how about specific instances where God says that people are resisting him uh, that eventually come around to his way of thinking? How about the Apostle Paul? Jesus, when he confronts him on the road of Damascus, he says, it's hard to kick against the goats. Well, wait, wait, wait. Paul was kicking against the goats? God was goading him to believe in Jesus, and Paul was resisting that call? Yes, right? That is something that can happen. So, uh, once again, no one can resist the sovereign will of God. We affirm, as Sean said, it's not that we deny anything that Calvinists believe. We affirm all of it. We just deny what they deny, right? So we just, we, which is a double negative, so you got to yeah. figure that one out. But uh, we, we can't accept the exclusion of human will, uh, human free will, in reference to God's sovereignty. We have to hold both in our minds together, which is a seeming paradox, and that's okay. Sometimes we have to be okay with that. Yeah, and uh, again, apologies, I didn't have the verses ready here. It was a little bit further down in my notes. Um, passages for sovereignty, of course, would include Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, noting our depraved state before God, and then God's intervention in verse 4, that's important. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, the passage noting, unless the Spirit draws you, that's important. Um, God's elect is most prominently stated. I quoted John 15 and verse 16, and also Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, to keep an Old and New Testament balance that Israel was chosen by God. They didn't earn some status as the divine nation. Uh, also note uh, the fact that there are people who will benefit from salvation and those who simply won't. Uh, that's argued from 1 Timothy 4.10. We challenge it to a point, but that's the claim. And then who has resisted his will, that's Romans 9.19 through 20. Now, on the other stat, I quoted Deuteronomy 30.15 through 19, that he has set before us life and death. Uh, Joshua follows through on this in saying, choose this day whom you will serve, but for me and my house, we've been predestined to serve the Lord. No, we will choose to serve the Lord. Uh, Joshua 24, 14 through 15, another good passage is Isaiah 55 and verse 6, and on to verse 7, and as well in the Gospels, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, whoever wills in drawing those, if anyone thirsts, let him come, and Matthew 23, 37 as well, in noting the uh, opposite stat. And, you know, just to be a little smarmy, the whole book of Philemon it's, uh, presupposes he has the chance to do the right thing, but still addresses him as if he's going to make a choice. It is sarcastic, but it's Paul. So you get the point. Um, let us know if you need any more passages or verses, but that's our position. It's in both and, not an either or. Yeah. Great. Ted, thank you for that, for that question and being part of the show. And we talked, I think, last time you were with us, Peter, about how, you know, there are things that make sense to God and they don't make sense to us. And that is to be expected and that is good because God is higher, his ways are higher, his thoughts are higher. And that helped me out at some point in my life. Like, oh yeah, I don't, it's not like, well, it doesn't make sense to me so it can't be true. No, God is, you talked last time about you know, like two-dimensional versus three-dimensional. And if you're talking to a two-dimensional someone in that realm, they, they can't have any concept of three dimensions and you know how much higher is God's, the, the reality of what he knows and his wisdom. So, yeah, not we, to dismiss or excuse us from pursuing knowledge, but understanding that right. if there is a limit to our knowledge, we're humble enough to acknowledge that is being handled by the right source. That's right. Amen. Amen to that. So, Ted, thank you. Great question. Thank you for it. Question from Mac about uh, the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh. Paul uh, talks about having a thorn in the flesh. Yeah. What was the thorn in his flesh? Was it his own sin? Do we know what it was? And and maybe as well, I'll add to the question, you know, what, 
will God, does God allow thorns in our flesh, you know, things that will torment us or stay with us to kind of keep us, you know, humble, keep us, uh, you know, walking with him, that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, no to the first, yes to the second. Um, no to the first, meaning do we know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was? Uh, there's rumors and suggestions, meaning that it was an affliction of the eyes. Um, there's the majority of evidence is given in the book of Galatians chapter 6 and other passages where he notes in, to uh, the churches in Corinth, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in particular, where he says that if you could have, you would have given me your own eyes. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, mentioned to perhaps a handicap that he had, but we can't be certain. And in Galatians, he notes with what large letters I have written to you, commentators would suggest that's because he had poor eyesight and he had to write extra large, <laughs> not because he large was print. in grade school. Yeah. Uh, and everyone here over the age of 60 would say, amen, I need that. So uh, the point being made... Is, <laughs> or just under 50. Yeah. yeah. But the point being made is that we don't know what his thorn in the flesh was. But given that passage in 2 Corinthians 12, can God do a greater work in our hearts by allowing things to happen that we wouldn't like uh, for the greater purpose of continued fellowship with him? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, from the Christian perspective, when you go through the Bible, even in the introduction of pain scripturally, we see that all of it is oriented towards the betterment of mankind. Now, that might sound very contradictory to you, but let me lay out a biblical case. So the first time pain is mentioned in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3, after the fall. And it's in specific communication to Eve where he says, in pain and torment, you will bear children. So what's the context there? that there is pain that is being introduced to the creation, but that pain is the entranceway to new life, right? That the only way you're going to get new life is through going through pain. And you can go through many other biblical examples in the Old Testament, especially like the book of Job, that shows how God can orient pain for the betterment of those who are enduring it. Then you get into Romans chapter 8, in which Paul gives a very long dissertation on this. And in Romans 8, he talks about how God introduces pain. He, uh, his direct words are, he subjects the creation to futility in hope, right? In hope of what? In hope that we will see the fallenness of our current state and recognize, oh my gosh, like mm-hmm. why is there pain and suffering in this world if this is where we're meant to be? Mm-hmm. If this is home, if this is what we were created to experience for our entire lives, why is it so painful? Why is existence and being so massively damaging to us? Why does it torment us so if this is how we were created and designed to endure life? Uh, And the answer is that we were not meant, we were not designed to be on a fallen earth. We were designed to be in a perfected earth. Pain is God, using C.S. Lewis's words now, uh, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's Mm. to help us see something is wrong with the creation. What, And then that's supposed to spur us on to figure out what went wrong and how can we make things right or can we make things right? Mm. And that's what the message of the gospel was. This is also why Jesus spends so much of his earthly ministry healing people. He's trying to utilize his ministry of healing to show people there's something wrong with the creation and the fact that I'm making everything right just by a touch shows you I'm the way back, Mm. right? It was to demonstrate to people I am the way back to Eden. I am the way back to the way that things were supposed to be, that just by being in my presence, 
everything is made right, everything is made correct. Mm. And that spurs people on to seek out Jesus and to find a relationship with him that will fix not just our fallen physical state, but also our spiritual state, which is far more important. Uh, And even Paul, because of the crucifixion itself, because remember, we serve the only God throughout any human fake religion, right? We serve the true religion, but in any religion that man has created about God, no God ever suffers Mm. in their dichotomy. We serve the only God that not only suffers, but dies. Mm. And his death is efficacious for the salvation of all those who will believe in them. That This is what leads Christians to try to find meaning and purpose behind what they're suffering. So when Paul suffers this, notice what happens. He prays three times that God will deliver him from it, and this is the response he receives from Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in the infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Uh, Earlier on in that same passage, he actually says that God gives him this uh, messenger of Satan to prevent him from being puffed up from the gloriousness of the revelations that God was giving him. So there's a really interesting way that he's able to look at his sufferings and saying, this is meaningful, this is purposeful. Now, this is very important. Uh, There's many reasons why it's important, but let me give you the big one. Uh, In my research, so when I was researching about my book on PTSD, one of the things that I found out is that there's a really effective type of therapy that's called narrative therapy. Now, what narrative therapy does is it helps people look at their trauma as being a part of a larger story. So the reason why trauma kind of fixes you in your past and prevents you from being able to grow beyond it, right? It it locks your mind in traumatic experiences from which you can never really grow beyond or get over. The reason why it does that is because your mind is processing these events as individual isolated events that have no connection to anything else. In other words, your mind is processing them as if they are meaningless. And because they are meaningless, because they don't have a purpose, it makes it impossible for you to get over them. Hmm. So what narrative therapy does is it teaches you how to connect even the most damaging parts of your life to the person you are today and the person that you want to become in the future. Now, where did people get this idea that pain and suffering has purpose? Hmm. Uh, Well, it's not from an atheistic worldview, because from an atheistic worldview, life is tough and then you die. Uh, It's definitely not even from most other worldviews like Buddhism or even uh, Islam because their teachings are essentially, well, uh, either religions like Islam where all suffering is just a result of you resisting God or from a Buddhistic point of view where all suffering is a result of you caring too much about the world. Uh, From the Christian perspective, suffering is a negative, it's an evil that's being shaped by God for a good purpose because he has created us for a relationship with him. Once we see it that way, we can speak about pain and suffering the way that Joseph did, right? So Joseph, after his horrible traumatic experiences with family, what does he say? You intended this for evil, but God intended this for good, that he may save many alive, Mm. right? So if you want to be able to grow past your trauma or to see it positively, sometimes this happens from a very humbling process of saying, God, I have no idea how this pain and this suffering that I've gone through works its way into the larger tapestry of your plan. I have no clue. Mm. I only see through glass darkly. I see the tiniest fragment of your intent, but help me by faith accept that there is a larger purpose for what I'm going through. Help me by faith accept that the God who took the suffering of his son and turned it into the salvation of all mankind, 
can take what I'm going through and turn it into something positive. Mm. Help me believe that. Help me accept that. And as you pray that, I guarantee if God gives you time on this earth, he will start to show you why these things have happened. He's not going to show you the whole picture because you can't take the whole picture, but he'll start showing you manifestations of the picture. And Mm. by the way, this is how the book of Job ends, right? Job never really fully understands why God allows that tremendous amount of suffering in his life. But God essentially says to him, you got to trust me, Mm. right? I know you don't understand it, but you got to trust that there is a larger purpose in all this. And Job accepts that. And that's how the book ends. So uh, really interesting. In the book of James, when it says, if anybody lacks wisdom, they can ask. That's the in the context of suffering. You know, right. we take that. That's one of the verses Trial. we just take. I'm just going to ask for wisdom. You know, to, yeah. but it's the context. What I take from it is, if you know, if you're suffering, like you're saying, you don't understand why, you can ask God for wisdom, and He will sh- show you wisdom. In He may not take the suffering, but He will show you wisdom in that in that season that you're in. Um, I wanted to mention you, your book is available on Amazon. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, Fellowship of Suffering. Yeah, Peter Fellowship Martin. Suffering talking about PTSD and and how as a community we can help each other through suffering. Am I reflecting that yeah, yeah. <laughs> really well? Yeah. It's a really so, crude description there, Dave, but yeah, I'll accept it. So <laughs> simplified, but yeah, on Amazon. And your other book as well, um, Rooted in Sin, Rescued by Love, is on Amazon as well. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll plug those even yeah, if you yeah. want yourself. But anything to add to that, Sean? I'm sorry. Nothing to add? Cool. Thank you for that question from, uh, from Mac. Very good question indeed. We thank you for it. Question from Casey. Casey, I really like this question. It's very profound. Casey asks, what is true success? Mm. What is it to be successful? What a great in, in question. In a biblical worldview. Yeah. Mm. No, mm. no, we don't deal with that. Yes, from a biblical worldview. <laughs> because a worldly, you know, worldly point of view, yeah. successful would be, I don't know, a lot of money, I guess, to have yeah. a power, to have um, all the things. But yeah, what is what is it to be successful as a Christian? Yeah. I'll give a couple points and then uh, toss it to you. Uh, so from a scriptural point of view, to be successful, to live a successful life is to live a life that is pleasing to God. Uh, that's the simplest way I could put it. Now, uh, that could be overly simplified to being only successful in terms of theological importance. So in other words, a successful life is one that is lived in faith to God. Now, that's true on some instances, but it's untrue on other instances. So while the ultimate point of life is to have a reconciled relationship with God, and you access that by believing in him, you can also believe in God, be saved, and then squander your life. This is uh, what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for instance, where Paul talks about people being saved as through the fire, right? Meaning that they're not building on the foundation that is laid in Christ, so they're going to heaven, but their lives are essentially squandered or useless. This the is works also, done in the life are burned up. Exactly. Uh, this is also seen in one of Jesus' parables where he talks about people that are hired on to work at a field, right? And uh, there's an interesting point where some people are working for like 12 hours and other people are working for one hour, and they all receive the same reward, the same reward being heaven. But some people were only working for one hour. Now, uh, people listening to the parable, they're like, well, that's wrong because how dare you give heaven or you give the same reward to people only working for one hour as opposed to 12. But the the way we're actually supposed to see the, the parable is, well, yeah, but those people wasted their entire day. Right? So the people who only worked for one hour, they completely squandered the rest of their day and they only did something useful for one hour of the day. So yeah, it, it is very possible for you to be successful in the, the realm of faith, but to be unsuccessful in the way that you are applying your life, applying that faith to the way that you live. This is why we have an entire book of the Bible uh, dedicated to practical wisdom called Proverbs. 
right? So mm. being honoring to God, living a life honoring to God is not just theologically true, meaning I'm believing in the truths of God, but it's also in a, it's lived out in a wisdom uh, manifestation. So I'm living a life that is in adherence to God's morality, but I'm also living a life pursuing God's wisdom, right? So it's very possible to be a moral person, but to also be very foolish, right? To, again, squander the good gifts that God has given you. So I'm doing it in a moral way, but I'm also doing it in a very foolish way, and that's what the book of Proverbs is about, that wisdom is more than morality. It's not less. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't be wise without morality, but it is more. It is building upon that. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's good, morally good for me to, let's say, wait until marriage before I have sex with my wife. That's morally good. However, I can have a moral sexual relationship with my wife and have a very foolish sexual relationship with my wife not taking her feelings into account when we're engaging in sexual intimacy, where uh, I could be also not very, not only not taking her feelings into account, but I could also be rude or disrespectful to her in ways that I'm not perceiving throughout the course of our marriage. Maybe we're not dialoguing appropriately about our relationship, our romance, and our sexual intimacy, and that's causing conflict and derision within our relationship. So again, I'm acting morally, but I'm also acting foolishly. Mm. Uh, same with finances. So maybe I'm tithing my money and I'm working in a way where I'm not being dishonest or uh, oppressive to my fellow workers. However, I might also be very foolish or flippant in the way that I'm spending my money. I might be not building up finances in a way that would be a good manifestation of wisdom to my children, or I'm not leaving them an inheritance because I'm squandering money more than I should, mm. uh, or, and I could go on and on. So. I think it's very important to balance wisdom with just theological truth when it comes to success. Anything to add to that? No. Great. Thank you so much. Great question, Casey. Appreciate that. Uh, let's see. We're coming up on the end of the show already. Uh, the let's hour. take this question on. This is from Dinosaur Fan is the, their name um, that their mother gave them. Dinosaur Fan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what happened to the dinosaurs? Can you guys sum up in a few minutes what uh, – what happened to the dinosaurs? Was it a, a meteorite that, that hit the earth or the flood? Or do we, what do we know of the... What makes this difficult is that dinosaur is a very, very modern term. And because people have control over language, they can change its meaning and then work with the data around the newfound language. When it comes to the word dinosaur, it just means terrible lizard. It can be interchangeable with dragon in some context. It just refers to something reptilian and large. But then they rechange that to say it's anything with avian-like features, and on it goes. So we don't actually know what dinosaur means anymore. And after Jurassic World 3, no one really even cares anymore. <laughs> but I'm sure you do because you still call yourself a dinosaur fan. We're holding strong. <laughs> the point being made, though, is this. When it comes to how a number of the paleontological yeah. <laughs> finds that we found concerning ancient fierce lizards um, would have been the flood, and we can verify that archaeologically through sedimentary rock. We recommend looking into the Answers in Genesis articles written about these finds from a perspective that doesn't assume atheism. Another uh, thorn in the flesh that they've very poorly tried to deal with is that, and this is the second part to your question, just dying off the same way any other species dies off through overhunting um, issues in, of course, adjusting to climate and, of course, to just overall having a bad day. 
one too many times until there's no one left. Uh, also, mm -hmm. obviously, deforestation, environmental issues, those kind of things. Um, the death of a, a T-Rex is actually discovered to have been, and this is even according to their dating, uh, had to have died within the last hundred years in an archaeological dig in Montana in the United States. Unfortunately, the one who headed the research, her name is Mary Schweitzer, who's a molecular paleontologist from uh, NCSU, uh, um, basically discovered a leg of a T-Rex and found that there was still fresh bone marrow inside of it, which means that it had died very, very recently. Mm. But my degree depends on this thing being from the Jurassic period, so it couldn't have been more than 65 million years old. So what did they do? Oh, uh, well, iron in your blood can form into some type of uh, uh, for formaldehyde yeah and uh you know like when blood gets wet in water it dissipates very quickly but if you keep it in a room temperature room for this is a quote from the article written around it two years it's basically the same so we can infer that uh you know if you keep it nice and warm and cozy forget the fact that every other 65 million year old skeleton we've discovered thus far doesn't have this this one uh just might have had that and the article ends with her saying i'd love to prove this if we find another one <laughs> it's stupid so the point being made is this what happened to the dinosaurs same thing that would happen to anything else uh the ice age is a good theory uh, natural disasters overhunting. i mean remember lions used to be indigenous in europe as well as africa but the romans happened the point being made is just that we don't have a lot of accurate records of what was going on in the americas and in central america because the civilizations exterminated themselves on it goes but that's the whole point dinosaur fan when it comes to the biblical information we are given it's not the story of dinosaurs it's the story of god's dealings with man what happened along the way well he can reveal to us in time Awesome, Sean. Peter, thank you so much for the end of the show here. Thank you for your questions and being with us. We'll see you the same time tomorrow. Email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. We'd love to connect with you. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.